Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. My good friend, personal friend, Nino Kolovec here, joins us. He's a member of the Party Quebecois. He ran for the PQ. He's a talk show host, radio talk show host. That's how I met him. And uh, was was once a very staunch Federalist, is now confirmed uh, supporting the sovereignty of the province of Quebec. And we've had lots of discussions about that, and we will again. But, Nino, thanks for joining us. Um, what is it that Francois Legault is trying to accomplish with his constitutional amendment and why? Um, I think that, um, you know, the timing for him is right. Uh, he has uh, uh, he put together a plan which... Uh, Un, uh, inexplic- inexplicably, <laughs> re- uh, as everybody ha- as everybody pretty well on board, the liberals uh, uh, and uh, and the opposition parties in uh, in the provincial legislature uh, are pretty much in favor. I think that this is something that has been hanging around for quite a while. These amendments to Bill One Hundred One, and I think he's found a formula which uh, doesn't please anybody. Which usually means it's a good formula. It's fair. Uh, the people on on the on one end um, want more uh, of uh, more restrictions on the English language are not happy, and those who want none at all are not happy. So I think it it strikes, uh, as we say in French, un juste milieu, uh, you know, which which is uh, exactly what is uh, what is going, and it's going to pass pretty much uh, unanimously in the Quebec legislators. So for him. It's a good move. I can't say that I agree with 100% of what he has put forth. Uh, I think that um, the aspects that have to do with education are a little extreme and are probably going to be called back at some point. But the the rest of it is pretty fair. And, you know, in terms of uh, making amendments to the Constitution, it has already been uh, stated, uh, including by uh, Stephen Harper at the time, that Quebec uh, is, in fact, a nation. Uh, and and it's not going to change very much the fact that it's now enshrined in the Constitution, as far as Quebec is concerned, uh, that we are and uh, Quebec is well, a nation, and that French is the official language. Well, well, my friend, it wasn't. He didn't say Quebec is a nation. He said Quebecers are a nation. There yeah, is a well, distinction from yes, what Stephen Harper course, said. There is course. a distinction. But we've had that conversation, you and I as well. Don't yes. try. Don't try to sneak one by me, okay? We've known eh, okay. each other too long. All right, sure, you got stuff. me. Stop that stuff. Now, what about what about the issue of language? What happens as far you mentioned education? As I understand it, there are some parameters, there are some rule changes as far as education in English is concerned under Bill ninety six. How does that change? Yeah, it's just a question of uh, entering in Quebec, as as you know. Uh, there's a level in but after high school and before university. So it's called here CJEP. It's a college a college degree right. that you get uh, two years and then three years of university, uh, as opposed to Ontario, which has 12th grade and then four years of university. The number of years are the same, but the institutions are not the same. So what is happening is many French-Canadian students finish their, their studies in French and then decide to pursue their CJEP-level education and, in many cases, their university education in English. Right. Uh, there's been some some there are some people who've raised flags to say that we can't allow that because it will increase and i'll tell you why on a personal level 
and I'm not speaking for the for the Parti Québécois here, but strictly on a personal level, uh, I don't agree because there are certain aspects that we cannot change in the, in the education program. For example, a lot of the science the science is is written in English. Uh, a lot of the scientific research is in English, so we can't prevent you know French Canadian students from wanting to access that. So there has to be, a, I think, a little more thought given to that, even though there there isn't a restriction on it nobody will be not allowed to go in they're just setting some new parameters in ter in terms of the number of students that can go into those uh, of, of french speaking students that can go into those institutions okay let me ask you, ask you quickly then what changes as far as primacy of the french language in quebec is concerned only well, one official language well, yes, but this is already That's been already, since 101, already, right? Yeah, it's, it's already the case. Yeah. I think that it just it strengthens it. I think that that little twist with the Constitution uh, just strengthens it. I think, actually, um, if I may say, <laughs> um, I, I think if I were on the Federalist side, I'd say let this go through because it's an interesting thing if you're if you're amending something that you're claiming you never signed. Are you really I know. I, it's, you you know, understand what I'm saying, this right? Is, I exactly understand what you're saying. And Quebec never signed the Constitution. Right. So, you know, I think I think it'll if, if this uh, gets uh, gets through in, in the way I think it will, uh, it will be one step closer to maybe finding some kind of common ground here. Are you surprised? Well, I know you're not, but I have to ask you the question anyway. Do you have any degree of surprise that Mr. Trudeau, Mr. O'Toole, and Mr. Singh all jumped on board and said, sure, Quebec has the right to do this. Um, none, none at all. When is that? Um, how far is September? What, three, four months? Yeah, you and I Before we have an election? Way. Yeah. So, you know, you can't, you can't possibly, they, they can't win without Quebec. <laughs> so, so, no, they can't. Um, so here's the, last, here's the last question. Is Quebec, by doing this, by Bill 96, are non-Francophone minorities, including the Anglophone minority in Quebec, are they being disadvantaged further? Yes or no? Not at all. This does not disadvantage them at all. The only thing it might curtail is the, is the use of that obnoxious phrase, bonjour, hi. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. that it's yeah, it's, it's remember very that. annoying. Yeah. But yeah. other than that, other than that, I mean, really, and even that, nobody's going to, nobody's going to argue it. Um, it will force uh, smaller smaller firms of 25 employees uh, to have uh, uh, to have a francisation, francisization, something like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so of, it's going to be their, the only language of business, right? In the language of business, but it really doesn't. It 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 doesn't affect. There'll be a lot of rhetoric on this. In the end, everybody will agree. And uh, I I'm just you know I, I'm I'm I like to think that perhaps this puts kind of a band-aid on something that's been uh, that's that that uh, in Quebec has been resented for a long time you know since the days of, since the rejection of the Meech Lake agreement maybe and if you look at uh, you know something we should do at some point we should look at Meech Lake and see where we're at today and if this goes through as well you know we're pretty close to a whole generation of people has no the hell idea what you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, but we're pretty close to the same re yeah. demands that Quebec was making back then. So I think we've we've made some kind of, uh, uh, you know, we've we've moved forward on this. I always enjoy our conversations, Nino. Thank you so much for the time. So do I, Roy.
Take care. I'm sorry I couldn't be more controversial for you this morning. Well, I was hoping you'd do a better job, but uh, you know, I'm kind of like in a you know pandemic mode. We're like we have so many other. We're other things. that. 1995, one week after the Quebec referendum on sovereignty, when they came within less than half a percentage point, Quebecers of deciding to leave Canada. One week later, I had the opportunity to be walking along the coast of the Pacific Ocean in San Diego, interviewing former Quebec Premier Robert Bourassa. Just happened to be in California at the same time, and I secured an interview with him, and he, of course, was the architect of Bill 101, the French primacy, the original French primacy law, in which they enacted the notwithstanding clause of the Constitution to pass it after the Supreme Court said it was unconstitutional. But... Now we know, because of Mr. Trudeau, that you can just go ahead and make any unilateral change to the Constitution that you wish. I don't know why I went all the way to the Supreme Court, way back in the day of Bill 101, when all along we should have known all it takes is just a unilateral amendment to the Constitution. Jay Hill is the leader of the Maverick Party of Canada. How are you, Jay? I'm good, but we're not the Maverick Party of Canada, uh, Roy. We're uh, just Maverick Party. Okay. I've unilaterally decided, sorry, Jay, that <laughs> the Maverick Party, which would represent Western Canada, uh, if you're elected to federal office, which would be a very interesting development. Let me ask you, first of all, for this, because Alberta comes into the discussion, and it did when Michelle Rempel-Gardner tweeted. Um, Quebec's unilateral constitutional decision and the fact that Messrs. Trudeau, O'Toole, and Singh were eager to support Premier Legault says what to you, apart from the fact that there's a federal election on the way and all three are pleading for votes from Quebecers? What does this say to you, that, that what they did, what they decided? Well, I think it says, Roy, exactly what you just said, is that uh, they're willing to uh, agree to anything as long as it potentially puts them in a, a good light to uh, gather up some votes in Quebec. And, uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, this uh, amendment uh, that Quebec is proposing and the federal leaders are falling all over themselves to agree to uh, is quite likely going to end up in the Supreme Court at some point. So it's not done just because uh, the federal leaders have all agreed that it should receive rapid passage through the Parliament of Canada. Okay, now you have a lot of experience in Canada's Parliament. So let me ask you, though, about the Maverick Party. What is the objective? And according to Angus Reid polling, Maverick has 7% support in Alberta. So that's not inconsequential, considering you haven't been around for a long time. What's the objective of the Maverick Party? Well, we have a twin-track mission statement, Roy. Uh, it, uh, the, the first part, uh, our, our option A, uh, deals with constitutional amendments to modernize Canada's constitution, which is interesting because of this discussion that has been prompted by Quebec's uh, expectation that they can unilaterally change our nation's constitution, not just their provincial constitution. Uh, so we have proposed five constitutional amendments, and interestingly enough, you mentioned in the preamble the dispute recently between British Columbia and Alberta, for example, about the uh, expansion of a 50-year-old pipeline. And uh, our first amendment actually deals with guaranteeing a province, any province, market access for their natural resources. And so uh, we would see that enshrined in the Constitution with our first amendment. 
and um, and hopefully put to rest this ability that British Columbia had to go to the courts to try to block uh, Alberta's export of their oil. Okay, so Jay, what makes it uh, desirable for a political party to represent the four western provinces in the federal legislature in parliament? Well, because we've learned something from, and certainly I've learned, having been in Parliament for 17 years, finishing my career as a cabinet minister with Prime Minister Harper, I, I learned uh, that uh, the Bloc Québécois, in representing only Quebec, certainly has a singular focus on the best interests of one province. And so we've determined in, in launching uh, Maverick Party just eight months ago uh, that our mission statement is to ensure real, uh, true Western representation similar to that, where Maverick members of Parliament would only be representing the best interests of the West. Realistically, um, what do you think, well, I have to ask you this, but give me whatever answer you wish. Realistically, what do you think your chances are of um, gaining sufficient support for the philosophy and for the party to, in fact, elect one or two members into this federal government? Well, I think our chances are fairly fairly good at the moment. It, it all depends on when Mr. Trudeau decides to call the next election, Roy. Um, we now have 31 riding associations across the four western provinces organized. We're shooting for upwards of 50 before the election is called. Uh, we've got seven candidates that we've appointed and that are in position and actively working in their constituencies to gain name recognition and, and really to build support for Maverick Party because so many Westerners still have not heard of us and certainly don't know what we stand for unless they go to our website. So um, we believe that we have an excellent chance if uh, the longer uh, Mr. Trudeau waits for the next election, we'll continue to, to build. And as you suggested in a recent poll, uh, we're polling now a 7%. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you consider that the party was only struck uh, mid-September, we're just past our eight-month mm-hmm. uh, anniversary. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, there's a growing awareness on the part of Westerners that if they keep voting the same way they have in the past, the result will be the same. And uh, Mr. O'Toole, in particular, is showing them the error of, of voting, continuing to vote conservative. Um, is there, and, and you say there are many people in Western Canada who aren't really sure what uh, Maverick Party is about, is there a separatist component, uh, a sovereignty component to your party? Yes, exactly. Our twin-track approach, uh, as I was saying, the option A is certainly to remain within Confederation. Uh, if we were to get substantive change, to the constitution of the country to finally uh, treat the West respectfully and fairly. Uh, If we don't accomplish that, uh, then we would pursue uh, option B, which is to lay the foundations for an independent West. And of course, we'd have to work very closely with the provinces and provincial parties to accomplish that because it would really uh, gain momentum through uh, referendums in the Western provinces for secession. Jay, has, there, has the Parti Québécois or the uh, Bloc Québécois approached you at all? Uh, no, and I don't know why they would. Uh, I'm, I know that from conversation I had when I was in Parliament 10 years ago, that the separatists uh, in the Bloc Québécois 
were always a bit surprised that the West, and in particular Alberta, didn't take a lesson from them and actually do this quite some time ago where they tried to focus on true Western representation. Okay, tell me please what your website is. It's www.maverickparty.ca, so it's really easy to find. So maverickparty.ca, and maverick is I-C-K at the end. That's right. Because sometimes, you know, it's it's a guessing game whether a C goes in there or not. It, you, know, you know what I mean, AJ? I do. Yeah. I had a very interesting email from a listener who asked this question, and he's a member of a multi-generational and very close family. And he said one of his family members is refusing to be vaccinated. Interestingly, though, the rest of the family has been vaccinated or is about to be vaccinated, and he's curious just how much of a threat or danger the refusing-to-be-vaccinated member of the family poses to the rest of the family who have been vaccinated at least once. Dr. Isaac Bogosh joins us, infectious diseases specialist at Toronto General Hospital, associate professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. Dr. Bogosh, thank you very much for the call. I thought, when I got that email, I thought, this is a very interesting comment on where we are as far as the battle with COVID is concerned. A year ago, we wouldn't have asked the question about someone being or refusing being vaccinated while the rest of the family has been. But here we are. And how do you assess this particular email, this question? Yeah, in general, I mean, if we're dealing with a family, let's just make up a number and say there's, I don't know, eight people in the family and everyone's fully vaccinated except for one person. Well, guess what? The other seven people in the family who are fully vaccinated have significant protection. So even if this person walks in with a raging COVID-19 infection, obviously we hope that person does well. Uh, We know the vaccines are really good. Some of those eight people might get COVID but they might not know it. Others might get COVID and have mild symptoms. It would be unusual for those who are fully vaccinated to get infected and have a severe outcome that would land them in hospital. It can happen. It's just really, really rare. So, you know, obviously we want everyone to get vaccinated, but some people are going to choose not to. Okay. Uh, As long as others around them are vaccinated, they'll be much better protected. But of course, not nothing in this life, even before COVID is 100 or 0%. So it's not full protection. Right. It is, though, an interesting email. And, and it is def- definitely a sign of the times of where we are. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we hear this all the time. Some people are jumping in with two feet to get vaccinated. Some people say, you know what, I want to learn a little bit more. And I'm going to give it a few minutes and learn a little bit more about this. And other people are adamant and not going to get vaccinated. Fine. I mean, listen, at the end of the day, People will make a choice. You would never force anyone to do anything they don't want. As long as they're making an informed decision, I'm okay with it. But I think it's also fair to say that if you choose not to get vaccinated, you this, this, this virus isn't going anywhere. This is going to be around for a long time. And, you know, at some point, unfortunately, your luck might run out and you're going to get this. And uh, it's just really contagious. It's really contagious. And, and we know it lands people in hospital and... This is avoidable. We know it kills some people, and this is avoidable. So I hope people get the vaccines. We've seen so far that they work, they're safe, they're effective, they protect you. So I hope people make the right choice and get the vaccine. Yeah. Uh, What's your view of Premier Ford's reopening plan? There's been criticism from the opposition parties and and others in the province. Is it being too slow, cumbersome, and and unfocused? Now, in my introduction of you, I didn't mention that you're a member, of course, of the 
the uh, provincial uh, task force, rollout task force for the vaccine. What do you make of this reopening plan? Yeah, great point. So just so everyone's clear, I don't make this reopening plan. I don't work for the province. I'm not the government. Uh, so I don't really feel like I have any conflict. conflicts. I'm happy to. I have been very vocal criticizing things and other things I praise. This one, honestly, if we approach this with the mindset of, listen, this has got to be the last lockdown we ever have. We cannot overwhelm our healthcare system. We cannot shut down again because of too many cases and hospitals overflowing. Then this is the right path. Like this will prevent it. It's slow. It's steady. I think what people forget and people who are criticizing that it's too slow don't uh, don't look at the fine print. And if you look at the fine print and if you listen to the words that came out of their mouths during the press conference, they were like, for example, someone said, listen, you're going to you're going to meet that 60 percent vaccine threshold in a matter of days. We probably have already met it right now. And, you know, why why can't we move forward? And and, uh, Minister Elliott said a couple of things. She's like, well, first of all, you have to look at healthcare capacity as well, which is there. You know, your ICUs are still jammed up and you're still getting 2,000 new cases per day. But she also said, we're, uh, I'm paraphrasing, if everything looks okay, we can move up these days. There's nothing stopping them from moving up these days. And I like that. It's good to have pragmatic flexibility to move things up and to speed things along. So I, I think this is a good, I mean, obviously you're never going to make 14 and a half million people happy. I think it's a good framework to work in. There's appropriate flexibility, and it also prevents us from ever having to shut down again. I don't want another lockdown. They're awful, and this prevents it. So I have to ask you a question about vaccines, and so let me ask you a question about AstraZeneca, because they're back in the news. Well, they've never been out of the news. Um, and, and now Ontario's okaying AstraZeneca as a second vaccine dose again. Where does AstraZeneca fit into the, into the overall picture? If someone's going for their vaccination and they're saying, I don't want AstraZeneca, I want something else. Where does it fit today? Do we know? Great question. Yeah, timely. So for those who had a first dose of an AstraZeneca vaccine, first of all, congrats. You got a good vaccine. We know from data with millions of people from the UK that this is a really, really good vaccine that provides excellent protection against COVID-19. So let's start with that. The second point is, yeah, everyone needs two doses. So let's look in the crystal ball for a second. There's a bit of speculation here, but let's look in the crystal ball. Everyone's going to get two doses. You're either going to, and I think the choice will be yours. You're either going to choose to get a second dose of AstraZeneca, or you can choose to get a dose of an mRNA vaccine, a Pfizer or Moderna. And guess what? And again, a bit of speculation here, but guess what? You're not going to be able to make a wrong choice here. You're not. Whether Some people are diehard. They want to get the second AstraZeneca. Great. Mazel tov. You got a good shot. Some people are going to be diehard saying, I'm not getting that. I'm going to get a Pfizer or Moderna. Great. Mazel tov. You got a good shot. Like, I, I really think that when we're looking back on this two or three years from now, we're going to say both were the right answer. Both are safe and effective. And we can enable people to make a meaningful decision by talking about the pros and cons of either approach, but both will likely be just fine. Okay, one more quick quick question for you. Are you confident that uh, the 16-week wait between the first and the second jab is going to be significantly reduced? I'm, no, 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 I can't look anyone in the eye and tell anyone with 100% certainty that it will. I can look at the numbers of vaccines coming to the country. I can look at the pace of vaccination. And I think it is likely that we will be able to move that up in some people. But that's about as much as I can say. Okay. Well, um, I was going to ask you whether you were playing golf this weekend, but I didn't. I'm watching hockey. (laughs) Go Habs. I don't know, man. I was going to say go Leafs, but either way, as long as hockey's on, I'm happy. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy. Well, we'll have to to debate that over. What was it we're going to have? 
a little refreshment and wings one of these days? You I know, for the second we're allowed, I'm, I'm heading over to Hamilton and I'll, uh, well, it's on me. All right. Well, that sounds great. Premier Pallister and Winnipeg Mayor Bowman met with uh, Mr. Trudeau yesterday, yesterday virtually concerning the increasing number of COVID positive cases in Manitoba. How significant is the increase? Because I was reading it's the highest per capita infection rate in the country right now, and the Winnipeg Mayor is critical of the Premier. How bad is it? It's bad. Uh, you know, today, the, the numbers, uh, I think there was, you know, probably a little bit of a reprieve. It was a little bit below 500, uh, you know, which is amazing that you can feel <laughs> be a little bit uh, optimistic about it. But the, the percent positivity right now in Winnipeg is 16.8 percent, which is exceedingly high. We're, we're well above where we were in the second wave. We certainly know what's going on uh, in regards to patient transfers. Um, and this is the start of it. So, you know, we're not near the end yet in regards to, to the stress on the healthcare system. I think that's what we're all uh, very, very concerned about right now. I just received an email two, three minutes ago from David in Manitoba, and he writes in part, uh, why are we going in the wrong direction, being in Manitoba, uh, when we have over 60% vaccinated? What's the answer to that question? Or is there a simple answer? <sighs> it's It's not a simple answer, right? So, a part of it goes back to trying to figure out, uh, you know, some of the dynamics of, of the, the vaccination. So where are we seeing uh, vaccinations or, you know, are those high rates spread out equally across all areas in the province and in Winnipeg? Is it kind of, you know, conglomerated in specific areas? Um, and where are people in their, their vaccine regimen? So even after that first dose, yeah, a couple of weeks down the road, we see good protection uh, from severe disease. We actually see decreased infectivity, but there's a time lag. So Vaccinations have certainly picked up, but the question now is where are they in regards to to eliciting that protection? I think that's going to be a big question, unfortunately. What do you see um, if you're once you're in the in the environment in the hospitals or in the medical environment? What do you see as far as people presenting with COVID symptoms is concerned, vis-a-vis what you might have seen a year ago? Is it is it worse now than it was a year ago, perhaps? You know what? I don't think you can necessarily say it's worse. So the you know the the new variants. Um, you know, there's been some data saying, yeah, maybe there's a little bit of a difference in in severity of disease uh, with, with the way that people present. But then there's also been contrasting data to say that no, they're they're no different. I think the dynamic that's really changed has been the age groups where we're seeing younger people that are showing up in the hospital that are, that are severely ill that are requiring ventilation, but they're also there for a long period of time because they're they're predominantly recovering. They we're not seeing that high fatality rate. The problem is, is that now we have to look at extended care for those people, and that means we're not going to be able to free up beds uh, very quickly. And, of course, then you see the downstream consequences with, with other diseases and ailments. So yeah. it, it unfortunately is it's a very different, uh, I think, pandemic now than it was in 2020 at this time. So one question is, why, why Manitoba? Uh, you had to move ICU patients uh, to Ontario, the premier is calling for the United States to send excess vaccines to Manitoba as opposed to having little groups of Manitobans going south of the border to be vaccinated. Why Manitoba? So this is such a great question, right? And listen, I've, I've been in Saskatchewan for 12 months now. We're heading back to Winnipeg for, uh, you know, at the end of this coming week. Uh, and I've been in Saskatchewan doing COVID research. And I left Winnipeg at a time when the province had had, you know, no cases for 13 days. So the, the question is, what happened? Well, I think it's a combination of of different things. I think part of it is this idea we weren't proactive. Uh, you know, I've been a part of many letters that have been sent to the premier, certainly been part of many groups that have been calling for uh, for proactive restrictions. And I think a lot of that has gone unheeded. 
we've had restrictions, but we haven't necessarily had the right restrictions at the right time. Um, so, you know, I think that there's a part of that, uh, certainly the vaccine rollout. Saskatchewan has done a fantastic job. They, they, I think they hit younger age groups sooner than what uh, other provinces did. So they've weathered the storm a little bit better. Um, but I think we're also at a point where a lot of these questions have to wait to be addressed until we get through the crisis. Because we, we frankly, we need everybody on the same side right now to, to get through this. And then afterwards, let's figure out uh, what went wrong and when it went wrong. A little tougher, isn't it, uh, this time, particularly in late spring of 2021, after people have been struggling with this thing for over a year, to, to get everybody on side on anything? Or am I, am I misunderstanding things? No, no, 100%, right? And, and listen, that's the difficulty because... Even, you know, even for somebody like me who, you know, works in infectious diseases uh, as part of their, their life and, and part of their, uh, you know, their, their interests, it's exhausting. We're, we're all tired of this. Um, we, we believe that there was going to be a reprieve. We certainly came out of the end of 2020 feeling much more optimistic based on what we we're seeing with the vaccines. And there's that question of saying, well, OK, when is it our turn? Um, and that's the unfortunate reality with infectious diseases is that it doesn't work the same way or at the same time across all regions within a country, let alone across the globe. So we're, we're going to get there, um, but we have to get through this. And I think this is one of these events where there was some warning, there's some early signs that, that weren't heated, and, uh, and now we don't have a choice but to get through it. Yeah. I received an email yesterday from someone saying, I can't see the lawn for the weeds speaking about this whole issue with the pandemic. And I, I thought it was a pretty decent metaphor. But we also, we also have the Pfizer uh, CEO saying a booster may be needed 8 to 12 months after the completion of the two jabs. Yeah, you know, and I've, I've seen differing thoughts on this in, in regards to, uh, you know, to, to infectious disease experts and, and immunologists. And, you know, I think that there's, there's always been some concern about the fact we, we don't have long-term data for how long the vaccines are going to provide protection for because, vaccines you know have just been licensed so we don't have that long-term data but i think we're also very very uh hopeful based on some of the biomarkers we've seen okay actually probably we may need a booster but we'll get sustained protection thank you for listening to today's podcast if you want to hear more subscribe to the roy green show on apple podcasts google podcasts spotify stitcher or wherever you find your favorites and if you like what you hear leave us a review and tell a friend I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.